radio operator. I'm going to be working for cinema. You must call me Aurora. I'm going to be the Aurora transmitter. Cinema ran one of the networks within the vast fraternity that Prosper had set up the previous year. We were not kept in complete isolation in the SOE. We were allowed to tell each other a certain amount, so long as it would be of no use to the enemy. If we were arrested and one of us spoke, the Germans would glean that there were networks in Paris and the West, Prosper and Cinema. They actually knew this already. They would also learn that a new transmitter receptor had started operating in Ile-de-France, the Aurora transmitter. But they would not have the vital information, the names under which Noor and I were operating, the names that appeared on our identity papers and which we would not disclose to each other. Noor suddenly looked straight at me and her voice quavered as she asked, Do you think we'll come back? I found it impossible to speak, and my chest felt constricted. There had been a knot in my stomach since the day war broke out. The knot would unravel only on the day the Germans capitulated. It was fear holding me in its grip. Before joining the SOE, I had been second in command of a commando unit in the special boat service. I had already fought behind enemy lines during the French campaign and in Libya. I had eventually learned to overcome the gnawing feeling which saps morale and drains the joy out of a face. But a girl like Noor? I hesitated. What could I say? Everyone in the SOE knew that agents sent to France had a 50-50 chance of dying there. In a classic infantry offensive, the attack would be called off if 10% of troops had been lost. We were a suicidal infantry unit. We had the worst deal in the war, with the added fear that if we were arrested, death might come rather too slowly. At night, we all dreamt about torture. So I did the only thing I could think of, what any man would have done in that situation. I put my arm round her shoulder. She huddled against me, shivering with fear. Several minutes later, as the paroxysm passed, she sat back up, biting her lip. I could see her fingernails digging into the palm of her hand. She drew away from me and stared through the steel-rimmed windscreen of the starry sky far above us. I'm so sorry. And it was then, romantic English cretin that I was, perfectly impassive in my guise as a secret agent and succumbing to a gush of tuppany-hipney sentimentality, that I knew I would love her. The outline of the chateau at Angers, slid under the wing, and a meander in the river glinted ahead of us. The Lysander lost height until it was skimming the trees. Before the arrival of the SOE, no RAF pilot would have wanted to fight in this cumbersome plane. It was so slow that it provided an easy target for the anti-aircraft defence, but the peculiarities of war had turned this fault into a feature. The Lysander had no competition when it came to landing and taking off with all the lights extinguished in a field or on a stretch of moorland, leaving the ground barely three hundred yards after it had set off. As far as the resistance were concerned, it was the friendly bird that came on the night of the full moon. Three lights suddenly appeared on the shadowy ground, between the ghostly outlines of bushes. They formed an upside-down L. The Lysander banked around it, lined up along the long side, and slowed. Facing into the wind, which was standard procedure, the plane landed and bounced on the sloping surface of the Vieux Briolet, one of the SOE's airfields. 
It carried on to the second light, turned round and taxied back, then turned once more to face into the wind again, ready for takeoff. With a gun in his hand, the pilot scoured the darkness opposite the lights. He knew that the agents on the ground were supposed to wait along the right-hand side of the L. His orders were to open fire on anyone who approached from the left. We were to be met by Henri Blainville. I had met him in London before he'd set off once more without any fuss to risk his life organising transfers for our agents in the Paris region. Blainville was a peerless pilot, enlisted in the RAF, and he carried out his every mission in the elegant and affable style he had adopted. Back in England, during a training course sometime in 1938, I had watched him hop out of his cockpit after some terrifying aerial acrobatics, as if he were coming away from a game of bridge, all smiles and chat, with his chestnut-brown hair neatly combed, and his blue eyes perfectly calm. One incident had established his reputation.